from two retired saints who are anything but retired to two young people who are testifying to how God at work in our midst has been ministering to them. Praise the Lord. And I look out and I see so many other faces where the same kind of thing is happening. Maple Avenue, let's not take for granted what God is doing in our midst right now. Let us continue to be in prayer, earnest prayer, pleading with God on behalf of each other and asking for Him to continue the work that's going on so evidently in our midst. And let's praise Him. It's not something we've manufactured. It's not something that we've conjured up. It's the goodness and grace of God. Praise Him. Uh, We've been working through the book of Matthew. We've reached the end, so we're on the last five verses. If you want to open there, we're going to read it at the outset. It's on page 835 of the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use that, page 835. We'll be reading verses 16 through 20 of Matthew 28. We trust that God has spoken through His Word. And we believe in its power, so the most important part of our service is the reading of God's Word. One way we convey that is through standing as we read God's Word. So would you stand as I read from Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated as we pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness that's been on display in our midst today. We pray for a continued outpouring of that Spirit in our midst as we dig into this passage. I I believe that uh, this passage as as a capstone of the book of Matthew is something that you want to use in our midst to actually shape and transform us in terms of who we are and how we think and how we live. And so together we pray, Lord, Spirit, speak to us, work in our midst as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. It's my own estimation that we are a people here at Maple Avenue who genuinely and earnestly worship Jesus each week. Most Sundays, there's actually a a palpable joy And zeal present here as we sing, as we respond to God's word read and preached. And yet, though we worship him so earnestly, this risen Christ, we look out and we think about the cause of reaching the unbelieving world, even discipling the believers from the various stages of life and maturity who we're here in our midst. And we can be 
frankly, overwhelmed. It's a daunting enough task to bring our own hearts under Christ. How are we to manage to do that with our fellow believers? Or especially with the unbelievers around us? And so, we, th- we think about, how can I do this? I mean, look at what we're up against. We're up against our, our own hearts, which at, tr- at times can drift towards doubt and unbelief. And then we think about how we're small in number. Yes, this room is full, but we're just a little gospel outpost amidst a sea of unbelief. And then there's that rising tide of humanism that seems to be drowning out the Christian faith. It seems at times that we're not winning, we're losing. We ache because we know the goodness of the Gospel. We ache for the world to know this Jesus. To know the freedom from from serving self. And to know the goodness of, of Christ's yoke and His forgiveness and the way he, he, he heals a broken world and He heals our crooked and broken hearts. We long for our neighbors and our friends to know the goodness of following Christ. But it can seem like an impossible task. If that's, if that's an accurate picture of our church, then we're not all that unlike the church that first received Matthew's gospel. Because they were a small but earnest community of believers surrounded by a sea of people that was rejecting their message and treating them with hostility. They, unlike us, were were brand new on the scene, so they had that against them. They preached the audacious, even unbelievable message that a man had actually risen from the dead, which would have been preposterous to the people around them. And adherence to their message usually meant social rejection and hostility. So likely for them, at times, doubt crept in. That's why so much of Matthew's gospel is refuting arguments that the Jewish leaders were leveling against Christianity. He had to answer these claims. So they looked out at the task. And they were daunted by it. The illustration we've used as we've tried to get our our feet or our, our heads into what was going on for that early church Imagine you have been given this enormous field to cultivate and you've been working and working and you have this little, um, this little patch of ground that you've seen after hard work, just th- the good soil there. It's, there there's, there's life, it's vital, and you see its goodness, but then you lift your head up. And almost as far as you can see all around is a field that's infested with weeds and thistles that's overgrown with roots, invasive species, and you think, this is so good, but how am I ever going to make an impact on this field and have the whole field be good, turn from bad soil to good? 
Matthew knew that was the situation of his first hearers. And that's why he closes his gospel by bringing their situation and comparing it to the situation of the very first disciples when they encounter the risen Christ. So what we have in our passage is the disciples, according to Matthew's account, the disciples' first encounter with the risen Christ. Now we know from other Gospels that there were other encounters they had, but this is the first one Matthew tells us about. And it's interesting what he draws our attention to. He doesn't sit there and go on and on about Jesus saying, touch my side, or here, eat these bread, or eat this fish. No, he focuses very much on the disciples and their response to him, and then Jesus teaching. Why is he doing that? Could it be that he's trying to make a connection between those first disciples and that early church? Could it be the Holy Spirit who authored these words through Matthew is trying to make a connection between those early disciples and our church? Look at how he begins. Now, the eleven disciples. He could have just said the disciples. He didn't have to say the eleven. But he's emphasizing that they were incomplete, unnaturally small in number. And then he tells us this, this group of people who's they've already lost one, they're unnaturally small in number. He says, look at how they respond. They respond in worship. So they see the risen Christ and they bow down in worship. But then he adds this interesting detail. But some of them doubted. Now, we're told in other Gospels that there were people who doubted that Jesus had really risen, but then when they see Jesus, the doubt goes away, right? Matthew's the only one who tells us that there actually was lingering doubt in the disciples even after they saw Jesus. Now, why would he be telling us that this small band, even as they worship, that there was some doubt amongst them? I think it's because Jesus wants to tell what Jesus wants to tell them is exactly what we need to hear. He's showing a connection between what's going on in their hearts, this small, incomplete band who's worshiping but yet entertains doubts, and the early church and our church today. And so Matthew tells us what Jesus said to the eleven in light of their situation. But the eleven didn't need to be reminded of what Jesus said to them. The people who needed to be reminded about what Jesus said to this group of eleven who are worshiping but doubting was the church. Make no mistake then, the words that Jesus says are words that are given to the church. More precisely, these are words given to a small, fledgling church filled with worshipers who are still nagged by doubts. These words are given to people who see the goodness of that cultivated plot 
but who then look out at the weed-filled, overgrown, thistle-infested acres surrounding them and are overwhelmed. Put differently, these words that Jesus said are given to us. And so let's look at what he says. The first thing Jesus says right out of the box is that he is king over all. All authority in heaven and earth. For that mind, that would have been everything. All-encompassing. That's all the cosmos. All authority is given to me, he said. And it's the first of four alls we'll see in the passage. All authority. What Jesus is saying there is, look, you got your plot, you look out of the field, the whole field belongs to me. That's what he's saying. Georgetown District High. Jesus is king over it. The street you live on. Jesus is king over it. Your seemingly godless workplace. Jesus is king over it. The family that at times you feel like you can't manage. Jesus is king over it. The field belongs to Jesus. It might be filled with thistles and weeds and thorns and invasive species, but it belongs to Jesus. Now, to grasp this, to really get it in our minds and our hearts, actually changes our whole mentality, our whole outlook, even our demeanor. I went to church for a time with uh, Colonel Bill Ladd, who had served in Vietnam. And when he was in Vietnam, I don't know the exact situation that led to this, but he got caught behind enemy lines. And he laid down in a creek bed, mostly covered in water, as the enemy soldiers were marching by him, and he had to lie perfectly still, knowing any movement, any rustling of the water, and he'd likely be dead. Slowly the enemy passed by and he was able to maneuver his way and get back out of enemy territory, back to territory that belonged to the Americans. Now can you imagine how you feel when you're behind enemy lines versus now I realize I'm in a safe place. This belongs to our army. Yeah, there's still, it's still unfamiliar territory. I don't really recognize where I am. Yes, I still see the damages of war all around me. But your whole demeanor changes. That's, that's the shift that Jesus wants to take place in our hearts. We're not behind enemy lines in this world. This is my Father's world, the song goes, right? This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. 
So how are we living? Are we living like Bill Ladd caught behind enemy lines, paralyzed, hoping we just don't want to draw attention? Or are we back on our own territory knowing this is the world that Jesus is king over, that all authority has been given to him? That's why Jesus ends his words somewhat like where he started. He says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority was the first all. The last, the fourth all is here. It's not explicit in our translation, but it says, Behold, I am with you all days, which is translated here, always, to the end of the age. You see, the one with all authority is with us all the days. That is, until the field is totally plowed, until God has made this world His own, Until that time, the one who is king of the world is with us. I went to, uh, when I graduated high school, I went to uh, join a church plant that was trying to reach the south side of Chicago. And it was planted at at the University of Chicago, which is this uh, liberal university. And... I remember our first meeting. We gathered together in this, in this uh, gothic cathedral, small gothic cathedral, and there were probably about 35 of us would be my guess. And we had a heart to see Chicago reached with the gospel. The University of Chicago reached with the gospel. The Hyde Park neighborhood reached with the gospel. And you looked around, and it was just a handful of us. And that day, we sang a line that William Cooper wrote that went like this. Lord, we are few, but Thou art near. Nor short Thine arm, nor deaf Thine ear. Oh, rend the heavens, come quickly down and make a thousand hearts thine own. What a beautiful prayer for that little band to pray. Less than two decades later, that church is now in four different locations across Chicago. I got to see people come to faith at the University of Chicago during our time there. Seen people go out from that place to serve in ministry elsewhere. Do not lose heart. What is Jesus saying? Be encouraged. It might feel like, oh, this is an overwhelming task. But if you just remember, I'm not behind enemy territory. God is for us and He is with us and He is over all. It changes your whole mentality. It changes your whole approach. Well, if the whole field belongs to him, if that's the shift in thinking that needs to happen, if he's going to be be with us from start to finish and, and moving the field from bad soil to good, then how are we to go about doing that? 
Well, in light of his authority, he gives one command. He says, therefore, and in Greek, it's just one command. It looks like two for our English with go, make disciples. But in Greek, it's just one command, make disciples. Now, this is important. It's important to look carefully at what it says, because if you've grown up in the church, you've been trained to read that as make converts of all nations. So that the end goal for much of the evangelical church has been to get somebody to the point where they embrace the gospel. And now, check, we're done. We've accomplished what God set us out to do. But it doesn't say make converts. It says make disciples. I served for five years in Texas. And they were a really good five years. I'm very grateful for it. One of the things about Texas that was a struggle that we had as a church is that it was filled with people who thought of themselves as Christians, but who weren't. And the reason for this is because uh, really for uh, maybe half a century before us, there had been a, a mentality of Christian ministry in the American South that emphasized revival meetings where the goal and the way we felt good about ourselves as Christians was to get as many people to walk down the aisle, to pray a prayer, to fill out a card, even to get baptized. In fact, while I was pastoring in Texas, I heard of another church that had built a fire truck baptistry that looked like a fire truck, and when a little kid would get baptized, it'd shoot off confetti. You better believe every little kid wanted to get baptized. It's not a joke. It's sad, though. Maybe you're an unbeliever and you're here with us today. And you've kind of smelled that. You've smelled that brand of Christianity. I'm just a notch in their belt. This is just another sales pitch in a world of sales pitches where I'm getting sold something every day and Christianity is just one more thing like that. If that's how you think, know that what the Bible calls us to is something entirely different. The Bible calls us not to make converts, but to make disciples. A disciple in those days was somebody who often, it was a rabbi, you would be a disciple of that rabbi, and you would learn the way of thinking from that rabbi. You would learn his methods, and you would come to be in the school of that rabbi. The best analogy my sports mind, my sports saturated mind can come up with is uh, in the National Football League, you have these coaching trees. So there's this great coach, and everybody wants to be an assistant coach under him so you can learn from, you know, Mike Holmgren or whoever it is, and you can learn his ways, and then people want to hire people who've been under that coaching tree because they know what they're about. That's what God is calling, that's what Jesus is calling us to. What we're calling people to is to make disciples. Make people who are fully devoted followers of Christ, who are conformed more and more to Christ-likeness. That's our our task. So when all you do is say, I'm trying to get people to say, I'm going to pray a prayer, or I'm going to click something on a box, or I'm going to walk an aisle, there might actually be no change of heart, no allegiance to Christ. And we can be like those, uh, 
those uh, cards in, in Alice in Wonderland who, who know the queen's going to be mad because they've planted white rose bushes when they're supposed to be red. And instead of uprooting the tree and changing it to a red tree, they're painting the roses red. And the American South is covered with people who have not been changed by the goodness of Christ and what he does when he forgives us and transforms us. Instead, they are still white roses who've been painted red. Nothing's changed. And a bunch of people work and look and say, why would I be attracted to that? And other people walk their way to hell thinking they are believers because they've been painted red. We need to do something different. We need to look at what Jesus has said. So make disciples Who are we to make disciples of? There's two questions we need to think about. The first one is, who are we to make disciples of? And it says we are to make disciples, what does it say there? Of all nations. Verse 19. Again, that word all. It's the second occurrence of it. We've seen the first and fourth. Now we see the second occurrence of that word all. I'm the king over all, Jesus says. Make disciples of all, Jesus says. Do you see the connection? Because he is the king, we all need to be followers of him. Because he is the good king who has a good way, who is justice and righteousness. We need to be followers of him. We need to make disciples of him so that this goodness can spread to all. It says all, but it doesn't just say all. It says all nations. And we need to think for a minute on that word nations because even though it has a somewhat wide range of meaning, its most common meaning seems like what's going on here. The word nations, its most common meaning is to refer to a distinct people who are united by language and culture. So when you hear the word nations in the Bible, you shouldn't be thinking of a political entity with borders. We should be thinking more in terms of a cultural people group. So, for instance, there is the the sovereign nation of Burma or Myanmar, right? But within there, there are uh, dozens of people groups. Some of the big ones being the Karen, the Bamar, the Shan, many others. So we don't fulfill this command by reaching the sovereign nation of Myanmar. We fulfill this command by seeing the Karen people, the Bamar people, and the Shan reached. Look with me in your Bibles for a second at Revelation chapter 7. It's on page 1032 if you're turning there. Chapter 7, verse 9. This is a picture of, of the end of time when God's new heaven is, is coming. And it says, And I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, and then listen, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Do you see, it's not talking about 
a political entity. It's talking about people groups. And all these different tongues, all these different peoples are saying salvation belongs to our God. See, that's, that's, that's the amazing thing here for these Jewish disciples who would have thought of this as the, Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who is coming to fill their, their particular uh, messianic expectations from their Jewish scriptures. And he is saying here, I am a God for all peoples. They will all tongues, all peoples, all nations will be saying salvation belongs to our God. He is not a parochial God. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. He's not just our God for our territory. He's the God of every man. All authority, all nations. During the years that God gives me at Maple Ave, and I hope that they are many, Georgetown is going to become increasingly diverse. Georgetown won't be a little Anglo-Canadian bubble forever. And as our community changes, we as a church need to be filled with Filipino and Jamaican and Indian and Chinese and Pakistani voices. I could go on, right? Look, God is undoing Babel where all the peoples were divided. Now in Christ, they're all being united again. That is how the eternal kingdom will be. And it should first be undone here in our churches as little gospel outposts in this broken world. So who are we to make disciples of? All nations. How are we to make disciples? And that's where there's these three words that come with the main command, make disciples. There's go or going, there's baptizing, and there's teaching. These three elements kind of flesh out what it means to make disciples. So I want to look briefly at each. The first component of making disciples is the word go. It's translated for us as a command because it it derives its command sense from the, the syntax of the Greek where it's dependent on the main verb. So even though it could be translated going, like baptizing and like teaching, it has the force of a command. I think it's rightly translated as a command. I want to think about this in kind of two ways. One is there's a certain sense where all of us are to be going, right? Especially in a day and age that has become much more multicultural, where the nations are at our doorsteps here in Maple Avenue in Georgetown. We are to be people who are going out and making this message known, going out in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, being proactive to make those contacts. So there's a certain sense in which we're all to go. But there's also a particular sense where if the people groups of the world are going to be reached, the only way they're going to be reached is if people actually physically uproot themselves and go. And I think that's the more more central meaning of this word here. We're going to be spending all of next week thinking about what it means, what this this teaching of Jesus means for how we're trying to go into the world and make disciples. Not just here in Georgetown, but abroad. But I'll say this here. The command for us as a church to go to unreached people groups, people groups that don't have access to that gospel and make it known, 
is a command we must own and take seriously so that we fulfill this as a church either by being goers or being senders. It gets fleshed out in Acts. So that together we are a going church because some from our own midst are raised up to go and make that gospel known and the rest of us are holding the rope for them, supporting them as best we can as senders. Go and make disciples. The second component comes after. It's there in verse 19. It says, baptizing. It's interesting that he uses the word baptizing, especially in light of what we just saw. Baptism in the Scriptures is the sign that we have transferred from the dark domain of the devil and self and man in rebellion against God to the domain, to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We've, God gave baptism as the picture of that because the picture shows you going down into the waters, united with Jesus in His death, so that you can be raised with Him to walk in newness of life. That's the picture. And so when we, are, when we make the move to say, you know what, I repent of this way, God's working in my heart so that I'm embracing Christ and His ways and His kingdom. He's transferring me there. The way I display that to the world is baptism. So Jesus is saying, baptize. And that's shorthand for Him for saying, make the good news of the gospel known to everybody. Tell that good news so that through it, the Holy Spirit can work in people's hearts and move them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, the good kingdom, right? So the first part of making disciples is to reach the lost. So when you think of disciple-making and discipleship. A lot of times we think that's what we do after someone becomes a Christian. But here Jesus is saying, no, part of making disciples involves what happens before someone knows the goodness of Christ and repents of their former ways and embraces Jesus. Baptizing. I just want to say a little aside here. That Jesus chooses to talk about that by using the term baptism, emphasizes that in Jesus' mind, there isn't such a thing as somebody who is a follower of Him, a follower of Christ, a Christian, who is unbaptized. Now, I'm not saying that if you aren't baptized, you can't be a Christian, or that's how you become a Christian, is by being baptized. It's much more like a wedding ring as a symbol that I belong, I've made a covenant to Karen. I didn't just stop being married because I took it off. But this is, a wedding ring is a cultural symbol. Baptism is a God-given symbol where he says, if you belong to me, that's what you do. You're baptized. And this isn't something where, okay, I just need to wait until I'm a good enough Christian that I can be baptized. Or, Yeah, I've made that switch in my heart and someday that's something I'll do. This is something God says, this is is the sign. This is this God-ordained sign we've given to show that we belong to Christ. And so I encourage you, if you're here and you have made this switch and you've embraced Christ and you have not been baptized, I encourage you to do so. I think Jesus would be encouraging you even by the way he words this. Verse 20. 
So we go, we baptize. And the third component is teaching. Do you see that in verse 20? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. There's the third all. All that I have commanded. So all authority, all nations, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Do you see the link between these alls? He is the king over all. All nations need to come unto him. And what do we need to do? We need to be all following. We need to all be following all of his commands. Now, how many of you, you don't have to show your hands. How many of you have reached the point where you're obeying all of Jesus commands? Most of you are saying not me. The ones who are saying me. You failed in humility, right? (laughs) So that means all of us are in this process, right? So I need this. The Great Commission, as this is often called, the commission that's upon this church to make disciples means you need to be discipling me because I'm not obeying all of Jesus' commands yet. We're teaching one another in our songs and the words we share, the words of encouragement we give and the way we pray, right? So, discipleship doesn't mean just get them out of hell. Call to make disciples is a call to help people grow in conformity to Christ, to be more and more like Him, so that as the world looks at Maple Avenue Baptist Church, they see a group of people who are becoming more like Christ, and they see and taste and savor the goodness of Christ because of how we behave. And again, if you're an unbeliever here in our midst, you're checking this out, you're thinking these things through, maybe you have some nominal Christian background or something like that, but you're here in our midst, I challenge you, watch us. Watch the person who brought you. Watch me. And say, are these people growing more and more like Jesus? With all of who he is in the scriptures. That will show that what God has said here is true in our midst. Put us to the test. So, what does it mean to make disciples? We need to be going. We need to be baptizing. We need to be taking people who don't know the goodness and making that known to them so they can be transferred to this kingdom. And then they need to be people who are grow- we need to be people who are growing more and more like Christ. So what, what is this saying here? It's saying, be encouraged. Jesus is king over all. We're not behind enemy lines, even if it seems like we are. So give yourself to making disciples. That's, that's why we exist. Bottom line, that's why we exist as believers. That's our purpose. And we do that specifically by either sending or going to people groups who don't have the gospel. We do that specifically by helping both unbelievers and believers bring their lives in conformity to Christ's commands. Now, in some sense, these verses aren't just a nice little section for us to look at, but they're the point of the whole book. We spent over a year now in Matthew, and I think this is the aim of Matthew's book. 
It's the point of application he's been driving to all along. So I don't want us to lose sight of what's here. I mean, did you notice how quickly he moved from Jesus being raised, boom, to this? He hits us with that so quickly, almost unnaturally so. Did you notice how abruptly this gospel ends? He's been going on and on, and then all of a sudden, boom, Jesus stands up, and he says, go and make disciples, I'm with you. Boom, drop the mic, it's over. Even the structure of the whole book of Matthew draws an emphasis to this because Jesus' ministry begins in Matthew chapter 4 where he's in Galilee and he goes to a mountain in Galilee and he teaches his disciples and they say he teaches as one who has authority. That's the first public thing we see Jesus doing and then it ends with him on a mountain in Galilee with his disciples around him and he's saying all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Do you see, this is where all of our study has been driving. Listen to how Matthew ends his gospel. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want us as a church to be shaped by Matthew's gospel. I don't want to be like the fool who goes in unkempt hair, looks in the mirror and goes, oh, I look bad, and walks away and forgets to do anything about it. I want us to stare intently into Matthew. We're not going to spend a year in every book of the Bible that we go through, right? We spent a long time in Matthew. We've been looking intently at what's here. Let's not walk away and forget it all. It is my earnest prayer that God would use this to cause every one of us to be a disciple maker. That's why next week, I'm spending another week on this passage, thinking about what that means for the nations. That's why in the new year, we're taking four weeks to look at the theme of discipleship. How do we do this? What does the Bible say? And it's why our focus for last year and this past year and this coming year is on discipleship. How do we we work so that at Maple Avenue, every one of us, every member is a disciple maker? I don't want us to just look at this and walk away. I don't want us to spend a year in Matthew early in my time here and then to say, what impact did it have? So would you pray with me? for your own heart and for us collectively as a church. That God would use what we're seeing here to really shape us and mold us into a disciple-making church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word you've given us. That you gave that early church We can be discouraged. We can look at the task and feel like it's it's too big for us. But you've told us to remember that we're not behind enemy lines. That this is your field. You've told us what our task is. Help us to be a church who is able to put flesh to this. Is able to live this out. 
pray in Jesus' name. Amen.